some of you can hear the first part of Matt's presentation, even if you're heading off to the other uh, symposium. And if you have more questions for Elisa's very important ideas, then uh, pounce on her uh, afterward. I'd like to introduce to you uh, Matthew Stanford. He is from the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Baylor University in Texas. And uh, um, he's going to fill you in on any other biographical details that you need to know um, on his own there. And uh, he's going to be presenting on a, um, a really important topic having to do with mental illness in the church, um, demon or disorder perceptions of serious mental illness in the local church. So you join me in welcoming Matthew. All right. Is this all right? Can you hear me? All right. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted a little bit, a little introduction about myself. I'm a neuroscientist by uh, degree. I'm a psychophysiologist by training. I'm a professor of psychology, neuroscience, and biomedical studies at Baylor. I direct our doctoral program. Um, I'm the head of the IRB, so I do a lot of fun, exciting things. Uh, I'm a research scientist. I, I don't teach very much, so. But, uh, but I am going to talk about, in a sense, engaging uh, the uh, Christian community uh, in trying to educate them on the discipline that I love so much. So uh, to kind of give you a, a sense of how this all came about, my main thrust of research is impulsive and aggressive behavior, the neurobiology of that. Um, I also have a line of research in PTSD. And recently, over the last uh, three and a half years, I've developed a, a line of research specifically uh, to try to look at the relationship and the interaction between mentally ill believers and the local church. Uh, there's a lot of uh, books particularly, but there's a lot of writings uh, and a lot of study around integrating psychological concepts into therapy, and most of those books are written for counselors or, or academics. Uh, what I was interested in is, is what happens when you have bipolar disorder and you go and you tell your pastor about that, um, or you tell the lady that's sitting next to you in the pew. And what I'll tell you is what happens is not a good thing. Uh, and it's actually quite disturbing. So I, over the years, as a person of faith and a person in the psychological sciences, uh, people with mental disorders and emotional and behavioral problems have tended to gravitate to me. They have shown up in the groups that I lead at church. They have come and asked me questions about their children, about themselves. And the things that they would tell me about their interactions were, frankly, quite disturbing to me that... Uh, anyone in the church would have said those things to them. So one of the things I'll have throughout the talk here are some different quotes. Uh, you know, you know I'm, a, I'm a scientist, and so I think, well, what are you going to, you know, I'll just fix this, right? I'll just write something, and it'll fix that, educate everybody. So, uh, But I can't do anything without doing a study. So I, I've done a couple of studies now where we've gone out and looked at uh, mentally ill individuals and their interactions. And most of these quotes are from a study we did of 300 mentally ill believers and their interactions. These little vignettes that they wrote about their interactions. Most of them will tear your heart out. These aren't the worst ones. Uh, those are really, really long and disturbing. Uh, but as far as uh, kind of an introduction, because I know most of the people here are not psychologists or in psychology, uh, some of the things I want to talk about here uh, initially as introduction to this area are really surprising to people in the church. I don't think they'd be surprising to you, but they're surprising to people in the church. For instance, that a mental illness is a, has a definition for mental illness, that a mental illness is a serious a disorder that affects feelings and thoughts and behaviors, and the person is non-functional when they have a mental illness. So I, I've made it easy for myself, and I'm not talking about minor mood fluctuations and things like that, but in our, our Western culture, we throw, away, throw psychology terms around like, you know, they're really cheap. 
you know, if I have a bad day, I'm depressed. If I, you know, I'm concerned about something, I'm, I have an anxiety disorder. And we do that all the time. And, and that kind of cheapens uh, psych psychological diagnosis, in a sense, for the layman. Uh, but when I, when I tell people uh, that you know, there's a definition for mental illness, they, they start to look at it in a little bit different way. Another thing that's even more surprising is that there's actually a set of criteria by which these disorders are diagnosed. Uh, to most lay congregants, in really a lot of different, you really surprise the denominations, psychology is like voodoo. It's just something you kind of make up when you're with the person. Uh, and in most instances, it's just a way to cover over sin. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through. Uh, but, you know, we do have a diagnostics manual. We do have a set of symptoms and criteria. Uh, it's not unlike when someone goes to the pediatrician and says, well, these are the symptoms that my child is showing. And then they write you a prescription for something and they tell you what's wrong with you and you go away. They usually don't do any kind of testing necessarily. Uh, they can tell from the symptoms what might be going on. So these two things, which are just kind of obvious, you would think, are really surprising to a lot of very, very bright people in the church that are not in the field of psychology or in the psychological sciences. Uh, another thing that's surprising uh, they find is that the extent of mental illness. 26.2% of Americans, uh, that's one out of every four people, uh, is got, will meet criteria for diagnosable condition in a, in a given year. That's a lot of people. Uh, and that's so many people that it's the guy sitting on the same pew with you. Uh, and, and that's surprising uh, to a lot of people. Uh, another thing that's surprising is that it's the leading cause of disability uh, in the United States and Canada combined for 15 to 44-year-olds. Uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder. I mean, you can just go through a whole litany of disorders of people uh, that are unable to function effectively, and it's very difficult to manage sometimes. And the economic costs are tremendous. I mean, this is just indirect cost from not working and things like that, $72 billion. If you add in the direct cost of actual patient care, hospitalization, it's unbelievable how much. I mean, if, if, this, if we could fix this, we'd have so much money left over that we wouldn't know what to do with it. So uh, it, it's really amazing. So again, this is surprising to people uh, in the church a lot of times, and so because they just don't realize the extent of it. It's, and frankly, what I found is because people don't talk about it in the church. If, if you, they keep their disorder to themselves. They don't really uh, say anything. Now, there has been a lot of work done about religious uh, communities and how they can support individuals with mental illness. Like, for instance, if you have a mental illness and you have a religious social support group versus a general social support group and how that goes. One of the interesting findings is that, for instance, individuals that have psychological distress are more likely to go to a clergy member before they go to any other health professional. They just do that. And there's even some studies that suggest even non-believers are more likely to do that. They just know that they can seek out help there. Unfortunately, what they're hearing is not exactly what they, they should be hearing. Another thing is that the psychologically distressed uh, individual gains from religious social support something they don't get from general social support. There's a tremendous amount of literature on this, a lot of work done uh, with the spiritual aspects of AA, a, a lot of different groups. Uh, but religious social support is a tremendously healing environment for someone with psychological distress. And, and I said that many before. It's also very uh, recovery-oriented. It can really help a person deal. There's some great stuff done um, that, that looking at uh, the severity of the illness and how long it takes a person to recover in religious social support versus social or general social support. So this is important stuff. I mean, this could really help people if we were open and available to them. 
The unfortunate fact is there's a tremendous amount of anti-psychology, anti-psychiatry Christian literature. Now, they almost all occur as books. There, there isn't any kind of quantitative kind of empirical study done that this shows is bad or whatever. It, it tends to be these kind of books for Congress. Now, this is a classic book right here. I actually liked that book. Uh, the competence of counsel, Jay Adams, developed new aesthetic counseling. Ultimately, in the end, all mental illness is sin, though. It's a belief of a sinful lie or something like that. But there are actually some decent uh, counseling techniques in here. These other ones are this one. Anybody ever read that one? Psycho heresy. Mental illness, is, there is no such thing as mental illness because it's not in the Bible. And all people that are involved in uh, any kind of psychological science are in heresy, teaching heresy. Um, they particularly hate James Dobson for some reason. There's just a huge website against him. But this stuff's out there. And I can tell you, I have actually seen these on the shelves of my friends. They've read these books. So my thought initially was, well, perhaps we could put some kind of book together and help people out. Uh, but they all vary in what they believe is true and what's not true. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at what were the people told when they went to the church. And who were they told that by? What was their response and so forth? So the first thing we did, you might ask, well, how do you get a hold of a lot of mentally ill Christians? Uh, I thought about that for a long time. You can't really go down to the pastor and say, I want to talk to everybody in your church that's mentally ill that you told they had a demon. He's not going to do that. So I thought about the Internet. The Internet is full of uh, help, self-help groups, bulletin boards for people uh, that have mental illness. Uh, NAMI runs a lot of them. But there's also a lot for Christians. So we got permission from webmasters of an enormous set of, of kind of bulletin boards, self-help type groups on the Internet to post on their bulletin board a little blurb that said, we're doing this study. If you'll go to this URL, you can fill out a, a survey for us. Okay, and it had a little qualifier. You know, we're looking for people of, uh, who profess a Christian faith. We're looking specifically at Christians in this in this first study here. So, 293 individuals, um, and this will be a little bit hard for you to see. Again, when I put this together, the thought was I'm going to get some information. I'm going to write a book from it. Uh, it really wasn't set up as a really kind of rigid empirical study. Um, but let me just kind of give you an idea of of some of these. Did the church ever suggest that you or your loved one did not really have a mental illness, even though a mental health care professional said that you did? The good news is 67.6% said no, that, that was never happened. The bad news is a third of them, yes, that happened. And I became very interested in this group, the group that where their mental illness, in a sense, was dismissed. You don't really have a mental disorder. Um, was a church, what was the church's position on psychiatric medication? 21.2% uh, either forbid it or, or really discourage the use of it. Uh, I have some more data on that later. Did the church ever feel, make you feel like your mental illness was a result of personal sin? Again, it's a third, and, and you're going to consistently see that kind of 30 to 40%. Um, and how has this interaction affected your faith? Uh, I was really surprised by the number of people that literally said they were no longer in the faith because of this actual incident. Um, and, and there's a number of those. So this really just was really discouraging to me. I analyzed the data... Um, in fact, perhaps more discouraging, when we broke it down by gender. When it's broken down by gender, who do you think is more often told that they don't have a mental illness? Oh, women, because they're ready. Women, right. So, and, then, uh, and then the women are more often told that they shouldn't take medication and so forth. And so 
Now, that made, me, that made me ask a lot of questions. It may not be a gender issue. It may be an ideological issue. Women, literature shows that women tend to go to more conservative churches generally. So maybe that may be what's driving it as opposed to gender. So this first little kind of attempt to really just get a little bit of information so I could write some, some general stuff really gave us the idea for a, a more specific study. Another thought uh, somebody, one of my students threw up was, well, maybe they really didn't have a mental illness. Maybe they just thought they did. Maybe they were sad, and they went into their pastor, and they said, I'm depressed. And he goes, you're not depressed. You're, you're just having marital problems. You don't need to go to a psychiatrist. I mean, maybe, maybe there really was some legitimacy to that, and that's possible. It, it's conce- there certainly is misdiagnosis. There's over-prescribing. So how seriously ill are these individuals? Now, one thing we did get in this one was the individual told us what their diagnosis was, um, and in the survey, it is self-report data. We asked them not to fill it out if they actually had not been diagnosed by a mental illness, but you know how that goes. But when you look at males, uh, males and females, the same number of, there was no difference in the severity of the mental illnesses they've been diagnosed with. But we wanted to get a little bit more data on that. So we did a second study, a smaller group, but more intensive. It's a group of 85 in which we actually did some, uh, gave them some self-report assessment to determine the severity of their psychological distress. Uh, we gave them a, a measure to look at the strength of their faith and their involvement with the church. Try to answer some of these questions that were there in the first, uh, first study. Uh, some of the questions are a little bit more focused around the individual. Again, this time at 41.2% told us that they, that their mental illness had been dismissed by the church. Uh, and then in this instance, we asked them specifically, were they, act, were they told to stop taking their medication? 28.2%. And that's been a consistent number from that point forward. We continue to find that 25 to 30% are told, don't take the medication anymore. Uh, did anyone ever suggest this was a result of personal sin? And again, you can see in the 30s. Now, this was something that an, that an editor pointed out to me. It was something I just kind of mentioned in passing. Uh, in your specific case, how much has the church been involved with this problem? 57.6% said not at all. And, and he actually, in his review, said that's the most important result that you have. Why is 57%, 57% of the church not, why are they not involved with, with a, this debilitating disorder that's going to really affect this per, every relationship they have, their job, everything? And, and that, was a, that was a good point that he made. Uh, and so we've, we've kind of continued to pursue that. What we do find... In the initial study, each individual was asked to write a fairly lengthy vignette describing their, um, what their interaction was like with the church. Um, and that's where a lot of these quotes come from. We went back through that after seeing this and, and did a content analysis of those to determine if they were a negative interaction or a positive interaction. Again, it's about 30% had a negative interaction. And then when you look at the negative interaction, if you try to kind of categorize the negative interactions, they tended to all fall into three categories. And the number one, 60% of the negative interactions were either the church abandoned them or refused to be involved in the disorder. So, again, that was a consistent number with this. But that was the number one negative reaction that was described. The other two were uh, they were told they had a demon or they were uh, told that it was a result of their personal uh, sin or weak faith. Uh, the demon was about, was about 21% of the negative responses. So let's look at a little bit of this data just to show you. This is, you know, we're going to zoom in specifically on people that were dismissed versus not dismissed, their disorder was. There was no difference in age. Uh, and the psychological distress scale that we use is the CDC's um, it's like a, it's called the K6. Kessler developed it. It's when the CDC assesses 
the amount of mental illness or psychological distress that they do every year, uh, they use this scale. And if you score 13 or above, you're considered to have serious psychological distress. Uh, there was no difference in the level of distress, suggestive that there was no difference in the severity of the disorders that they had. And the strength of faith, this is the Santa Clara Strength of Religious Faith questionnaire. Uh, the higher the score, the more involved you are at the church, the more kind of internalized you've internalized the, your faith. It's important to you. Again, there was no difference in those. So, that, in fact, what's interesting is those that had their disorders dismissed, they actually attended church more often than those who did not have them dismissed. So, in a sense, um, you could say they're, very, they're both psychologically distressed, and they're both good participating members of their congregations. You know, one of my students has said, well, maybe they're just the, they're the fringe element. Maybe they just, this is the only time they ever showed up at the church. And they said, I got bipolar disorder. And they, the person didn't know what to do with it. Now, another thing you might ask is, well, who is it that said this to them? Which was the question we had in the first one. Uh, in every instance, uh, every question that we asked that, that I just showed a moment ago, uh, it, it was either a congregant or the senior pastor. If the senior pastor wasn't the number one highest likelihood, it, they were the second one. So, so it is, it, it's something that we see both from the, the ministry staff, because we ask about that also, and from the congregants themselves. One of the things that we're finding is that if someone in the congregation, if they share with someone, I have bipolar disorder, for instance, and someone in the congregation says to them, oh, well, that's just, you know, there's no such thing as that. That's just sin. That's, they're not going to go to the pastor now. And so you're, you're going to see that shut off. And that's what we're, we're seeing that as we go through these interviews and talk to people. They're, no longer, they're not going to pursue it any further because they then believe, well, that's what everyone, whether that's true or not. Um, one of the things I also wanted to know was, we asked about specific denominations, but we also asked them to rank where their um, congregation felt on, on uh, conservative to liberal uh, dimension of the, um, doctrine and interpretation of scriptures. That's somewhat conservative and somewhat liberal, not southwest conservative. And so, indeed, what you did do fine when you, when you analyze that data is that the more conservative churches tend to be more dismissive of the disorders. And then if you looked at charismatic or spirit-filled, you do find that charismatic or spirit-filled tend to be more dismissive than ones that aren't. Now, what's particularly disturbing about that is I go to a very conservative, spirit-filled church, and I don't believe that. I don't tell people those things. So if, if I can do what I do, why, why would my fellow congregants... It, it must be some naivete. They must not understand this fear or lack of understanding. So what I've done is to begin to be on a crusade, and I want to now kind of educate that. So we begin to develop material to try to educate people on that. Now, if you, your disorder was dismissed, these are your three, uh, or first two are your two most likely responses of, of why you have a disorder, and that is personal sin or a demonic involvement. Those were more likely than not what you would be told if the church told you, no, you don't have bipolar disorder. There's no such thing as that. Uh, this is personal sin or weakened faith, uh, or it could be demonic involvement. Now, which, there's, a, there's a lot of kind of connectiveness here between if you're in a church that's more conservative, particularly a spirit-filled church, you're more likely to attribute day-in, day-out things to spiritual issues. And so you are more likely to say, you, you see what I'm saying? So there, there's a lot of interaction here that isn't necessarily unhealthy, um, 
it's just that these people are kind of fallen by the wayside. Stop medication again. They're more likely to be told to stop taking their medication if uh, their disorder is dismissed, which is what you would expect. So as a whole, uh, in these two studies, what we tend to find is uh, you know, 30 to 40 percent are being kind of dismissed or denied. Uh, there's uh, no dis difference in the severity of the disorders between those that are dismissed or denied. So it isn't an issue of kind of minor mood states versus someone who really has a disorder. Uh, conservative, more conservative or charismatic churches tend to deny more than those who aren't, although there's a healthy lot of mainstream, which you would never imagine, kind of mainstream denominational churches where a good group of people were, had their disorders denied. And then ultimately kind of more disturbing than anything is that women are more likely than men to be told uh, that indeed uh, their disorder is not real and they should stop taking medication. Again, I'm not sure whether that is a gender issue or an ideological the women do go to more conservative churches. It could be ideology. Uh, we've, in papers we've talked about, it could be a patriarchal kind of male leadership type of thing, uh, but we're, we're not sure yet. We haven't got uh, enough data on that yet. Now, what I've begun to do is I've begun to talk to a lot of pastors, and I've been talking to a lot of mentally ill Christians, and uh, our, we've been developing, I have a, a book that's coming out on this material. I'm, I'm going to show you a kind of a holistic approach to try to, how do you get the church, and, and I don't mean the pastor, so I mean the congregation, how do you get those people involved in treatment and recovery of the mentally ill, to support them, to help them, to move them along to recovery? Now these are, I, I don't have time, but these are, these are kind of the eight common things I hear when I talk to Christians about mental illness, that they tell me why there's no such thing as mental illness. Uh, and they vary everything from there's no specific medical test, like a blood pre brain pr blood pressure type of thing. You can't test for it. I said, well, you know, there's no test for Alzheimer's disease either. But no one ever told anyone I, Alzheimer's disease. They just need to pray a lot more. And, and then that really surprises them. They think there is a test for Alzheimer's disease. And so those have, the two, finally, to mental illness is not in the Bible. That's one of my favorites. And then, and you know, you can, you, this is easily dismissed. It's, it sounds really funny, like that person's going to be very tenacious and hold on to that. If you simply use one simple story, and that is David is hiding out from, the, from Saul. He goes to uh, hide with the Philistines. And what does he do at the gate? He ruffles his hair up and he drools on himself and he acts like he's mad. So you can't act like something that doesn't exist. And I can't tell you how many times I've, in, in some material that we developed now, I've been giving uh, talks at Christian organizations and at, at uh, Christian churches. Uh, that's very quickly done away with. But that's a very commonly held belief. It's not in there, so it's not real. Uh, and mainly that comes out of that Psycho Heresy book, the Bobgins. They have a whole ministry around using that idea. But what we've done is we've tried to develop kind of a holistic model of how can the church be involved. And again, I don't mean doing counseling with them necessarily, but I, I do mean how can the lay congregate be involved in looking at, you know, kind of body, mind, and spirit, uh, you know, kind of encouraging medical treatment, being there to support physical needs, uh, you know, being there in a supportive role as far as uh, taking medication, things like that, uh, providing an appropriate biblical context both for the medical treatment but also for a psychological uh, you know, psychotherapy or adding in pastoral counseling. Really, that's really the key is providing an appropriate biblical context because what I'm finding is it's not so much that people are naive about psychology. It's they're naive about what's in the scriptures also. And so when someone goes, well, you know, why is depression a sin? If they're asked that question, oh, I don't know, it just it must be. 
Well, you know, and so, you know, let's look at that. Why is that? You know, and so, and then spiritual support, you know, praying with them. I mean, we, uh, you know, pray, there's an enormous literature now looking at health and prayer and, and health and involvement in religious activities. I mean, this is real stuff. I mean, you can use that to demonstrate to them that this is effective. So we're trying, we've developed some material, uh, developed like a Sunday school class out of that that I actually taught and uh, going around speaking at churches and then ultimately uh, we had this book coming out focused on that, uh, that idea of its holistic approach, but going through and, and laying out the science also, talking about neurotransmitters, brain function, you know, different, you know, presenting the science in such a way that anyone can understand it. I, I very much have lived by the, the idea that, you know, someone once said, if you can't teach, if you can't explain what you do to a six-year-old, you don't know what you do. And so I really, you know, that's what I need to be able to do. I need to be able to ex- explain to someone the neurotransmitter issues of bipolar disorder. And, and that's what we try to do in the book. And so we've continued that. We have a study that's going to begin in the fall. We're going to be doing an intensive survey of, of, uh, of pastors and trying to get an idea of what doctrinal positions do they believe are connected to this idea that mental illness is sinful, you know, so that we can begin to kind of look at those specifically and say, well, is that really what that says or not? So uh, that's kind of where we are. Again, this is a third line of research. I'm mainly studying violent people. Uh, but it's been very, very interesting. Uh, it's been very, very uh, sad, but it's been, it's been very, very interesting. Uh, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Okay. Again, if you have questions, if you could please go to one of the mics and the stairs for recording purposes, that would be appreciated. And we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, for those of you that came in later, Judy Taranchuk is not here, so this is the last presentation in this symposium. So we'll take a few minutes for public questions, and then after that you can talk informally to either Lisa or Matt um, in a few minutes. What I have found, why people don't go to the church for help, is the church shuns you. Oh, Absolutely. I have raised three handicapped boys. What's your question? My question is, why... The mic, please. Why do people in the church shun not only the handicapped person with the mental illness, but the parents as well? No, I I have found that in this data. The whole family tended to be put out. And I, I think that... Again, I think what it is, one, a really good friend of mine who has bipolar disorder who has really helped me quite a bit with this stuff, I think she really said it well. What, in, in, in our modern society and even in the church, what we want, we want quick answers. And we don't want to have to think about something we don't understand that's difficult and messy to deal with. We're going to have to walk alongside for a, perhaps an entire lifetime. A handicapped child, for instance. We want a quick answer to the woman with bipolar disorder. Well, you just need to pray more, and that'll be okay. Uh, and I think it really is kind of a, just an issue of being naive and not fully understanding. I really think if they can begin to understand what the family goes through that has to deal with the individual, and that's another thing we're trying to do with the material we're developing, trying to explain to people what is it like. We have a whole chapter in here. What's it like to have a mental illness? What do you have to do day in, day out when you have a mental illness? Uh, it isn't that you're just sitting at home going, ha, ah, I convinced them all I have mental illness, I don't have to do anything. I mean, it's, it's terrible and tragic. So, no, I've, I've seen the shunning of the family. Yeah. And I think education is really the only way yeah. we're going to be able to do anything. who developed schizophrenia, and you would have thought that we were the most horrible people on the face of the earth. 
And after I watched that child screaming, Jesus save me, Jesus save me, the snakes are eating me, I'll never feel the same about people who will shun me because my faith isn't sufficient. I have been a born-again Christian for a long time. Yes. Uh, see, I, have a, I think it's a two-part question. Um, what do you think about uh, the, the hypothesis that a certain percentage of these people actually do have a spiritual affliction? And uh, the second part of my question is... Uh, uh, there were a number of people that uh, seemed to have some kind of this kind of affliction in in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and they were always seemed to be treated in the few cases we can see in the Bible as if they did have a a demon actually. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, well, I don't think they all did. I think some of them were just uh, had epilepsy, and I don't believe that's a demon affliction at all. So, but they evidently seem to. So what is your, how do you that, that's a, this out? That's a good question. Uh, I'll answer the first one and then the second one. The first one's a little easier to answer than the second one. Because uh, I'm just going to sum it all up for you over 2,000 years of Christianity right here in one minute. But the, uh, they all have a spiritual problem. 100% of them. Because all illness is, has a spiritual component to it, whether it's physical or mental illness. Uh, because because it, if we look at... If we look at the scriptures, if it tells us that uh, sickness and, and suffering, things like that, do have spiritual components to them. So in the book, we talk about, you know, you need a holistic approach. You need to treat the physical. You need to treat the spiritual. You need to treat the mental. And so, it, you know, we, we take the approach that they all have some spiritual aspect to them. I'm sorry, I didn't make my question clear. I meant a spirit, a foreign spirit. Oh, well, that, that's the second part of the question. I think well, number one... That's the first part, and then the second. Well, see, part I think is, you have to. I think you have to tease it apart. I think that there is a spiritual component. Yeah, and, we all and, agree with that. Yeah. And then, well, good, because I tell you, not everybody does. Well, now, we're, now, as far as the demonic goes, which is, I guess, what you're really asking, yeah. is there's a subject I avoided, like the plague in the book. Okay, but my editor wouldn't let me do it. He forced me to write a whole chapter on it, and I spent a long time going through. Uh, and so I do have a whole chapter on that in the book. What you find when you look at the scriptures is that the gospel writers really blur the lines between when they use terms that are associated with healing and when they use terms associated with what we think of as exorcism in Jesus' ministry. Uh, to them, it's not that big of a difference. And uh, the other thing is, is that but there are clear delineations between where people have uh, a spirit and people who have, say, some physical abnormality with them. But as far as demonic possession goes, boy, I was hoping I wouldn't be talking about this today, uh, is that the, there are examples of, of people in the scripture who have a woman with a crippled leg, for instance. You know, Jesus heals her and then says that she has, uh, that she's been bound by Satan for 18 years. Now, he isn't saying she's possessed. He's just saying that this illness that she had was somehow uh, related to the spiritual d- dimension. Whereas other examples like legion, where the person's actually controlled by the demonic and a spirit has to be removed out of them, are very different. I mean, the, the thing is speaking out of the person. There's another example of a, the man in the synagogue. So what I went through is I went through and I looked at those. And one of the things that I think uh, people do is they look at that and they think that it's like kind of a, a videotape of Jesus' entire life. They actually occur quite rarely in relationship to everything else that occurs. They're never mentioned in the epistles. 
They're mentioned only really one time in passing in Acts. Uh, it doesn't seem that exorcism and the demonic, demonic possession was really even a, an issue in the first century church, although the early church fathers do mention the demonic in their writings. So what I end up saying in this is, I don't know that we can differentiate that. I know that Jesus could, but I'm not Jesus. And so uh, what would you tell somebody that you thought was demonically possessed? Well, I think you would probably point them to Christ and you would pray for them. Or what would you tell somebody you thought had a mental illness that wasn't caused by the demonic? I think you'd point them to Christ and you'd pray for them. I don't know that there's really a difference. And so what I, what I suggest in the book is, I mean, our jobs as believers in Jesus Christ is to point people to Jesus Christ and to, and to nurture them and, and hold them and, and comfort them and, I mean, and help them become fully recovered individuals, both mentally, spiritually, and physically. And I don't really see that we can differentiate it. I think the thing is we could talk about it forever, you know, about whether it's you can. Now, people disagree with me on that. I've had plenty of people go, oh, well, we're told to cast out. And, and I have no response to that. I don't know. I can't tell. So, I mean, I've been working, I've sat across the table from thousands, literally, of violent and mentally ill people in my career. Uh, and I couldn't, I mean, people always ask me, have you ever met anybody that was possessed? I have I don't know. I don't know. I say, the scriptures do say that occurs. So, I guess I'm talking all around your question, but I'm not answering it. So, really what I think is that we, we kind of put... In the church, particularly in very conservative churches, they tend to put a lot of emphasis on that. And I think the issue is that when you put the question back on them, okay, well, what do you do? You know, in most conservative Protestant churches in America, they're not doing exorcisms. So they don't really have an answer either. Does that make sense? Do you have, do you have an answer, something that, to say? Because well, no, I, 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 mean, I would love to hear it. With you, but I'm, it's a mystery to me, too. I mean, I haven't resolved this at all. Right, I don't, and it's a very difficult... Now, it... You know, I think what I end up saying at the end of that chapter is we can't tell, so we should treat everybody the same. And that is that we should, we should point them to Christ. Uh, I also say in that that, you know, if, if you really want to look at the text, I don't think someone who is a believer can be possessed. But if, that, you know, if that's the kind of thing that you're interested in. Yeah, that isn't an issue for me. I, can they, I mean, if, if it can happen, they're not possessed because they belong to Christ. But can, can people be afflicted by an evil spirit, uh, you know, harassed or something. Right. And I, that's never happened to me, at least that I know of. Right. See, I don't even think we even know if it happened to us. I mean, that, that's, and so I, you know, ultimately I come down on this side, and that is, it says that they can in the scriptures, and they were, so I figure they can now, but I can't tell the difference, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to worry about Christ. So, okay. now I'm preaching. There's so, one more question in each microphone, and then I think that will end our discussion, formal discussion. So over here on the left first. It gets way far afield from first. science very quickly, doesn't it? Perhaps a quite a bit simpler question. Um, <laughs> you talked about people uh, not wanting to, telling people to, continue, to discontinue medication. Mm -hmm. um, at what point and what level of psychological uh, affliction should somebody step in as a Christian and say, no, you really should have to make your, and what level is it ethical to make right. parents medicate their children? Right. Well, I think that I'll answer that question where you, you ask, what could you step in and if somebody's taking med, you're kind of answering that question of whether they should or not. I mean, for me, this, the thing is, is, people come to me all the time and ask me if they should take medication. That is a tremendous question in the church. And usually it's around the idea of, is it some kind of, it's usurping God somehow. If I, it shows I don't have faith in him to heal me. 
but I tell people I wouldn't take medication without getting a full assessment. Don't let your general practitioner prescribe medication for your child. I've told, I've told people in, in my church that have their child on, on psychostimulants from the pediatrician that saw them for 10 minutes, you need to go have your child assessed because you need to find out if they really need to take medication or not. So I think there is a, I, I think there's a, a, a reason that we sh- would step in and say you, know, you need to be completely assessed, you need to make sure that things are ruled out and that this, you know, for anything, you know, even for antibiotics or anything like that. I think it's just being aware of the situation, being educated. Um, I mean, you wouldn't want to take medications that somebody gave you that didn't really assess you effectively. Um, I do see what you're saying about if you see somebody, for instance, one of the examples I, I talk about in the book is my wife was uh, involved in a mops group, mothers of preschoolers, and there were 10 women on the steering committee. Seven of them were taking Prozac. Well, that's actually literally, they were, that's not even to be facetious, that's a little higher than the national average of people that are, are, have depression. I mean, now, the thing is, I knew all of them very, very well. Many of them have been prescribed, they were happy to tell me, their Prozac by their general practitioner. One was having a marital problem, one had a death in the family. I mean, there were some legitimate reasons, but there were some other, and I see what you're asking. You ask the question, is somebody begins to rely on some medication when perhaps they really have something they could work through? Is that not the... I think you're misunderstanding my question. I was uh, turning it on its head. Mm-hmm. I was talking about parents who are against medicating their children oh, okay. for any reason when in reality that child really should be medicated and is not reaching its full potential. And what point can we ethically step in and say you have to medicate your child? Yeah, well, I think it's just a layman. I think it's difficult for us to step in. I, I, that's why I always just encourage full assessment. You know, if, if you see a child in distress or a family that's struggling, to encourage them to get assessment. One of the drawbacks is that insurance doesn't pay for it usually. But a lot of times what I've encouraged people to do is go to uh, medical school or, um, or a psychology department. I know we do a lot of pro bono work through our, our clinic and they can get those assessments. Um, but yeah, ultimately as far as telling somebody to, I, I don't know that we ever can really do that. Uh, ultimately that's the, the determination of the parent, but I just encourage a full assessment and that's how we try to do that. I kind of talked around your question too. but. Okay, we got one last question. One quick comment, uh, and that is, is that, um, and I can't remember his first name, Wilson, but he was David Larson's mentor at Duke and the head of psychiatry there. Uh, a wonderful Christian charismatic who did a lot of work overseas, and, and he was involved in several exorcisms. Mm-hmm. If you may know him or know of him, and we had some personal stuff related to some things in the family that he was helpful with some counseling us. And so I think that, yeah, I think uh, he tells this wonderful story about when he was on the wards at uh, Duke University Hospital and he had this mountain woman who was about to, and he did his greatest exorcism right. ever. And uh, it was uh, successful medically for whatever reason. So And there is some literature around that, uh, examples of, uh, there are a few, and, and that, I know that, that around that idea that if, if indeed that's what the patient is looking for, that that, that can be incorporated into their, into their therapy. If indeed they believe themselves to be possessed, perhaps uh, an exorcism might be necessary. Uh, and he said he saw it much more in the developing world than he did ever did right. in Western. And, that, that's one of the and, that, I, and that's that's really one of the conclusions I came to in there was the idea that, you know, I, I hear that my church is real, very missional. We send people out every week. And that's where you hear about it. You don't really hear about it that much in the West. You hear about it on the mission front in, in these kind of a evangelistic kind of outreach. And indeed, that's what, if you look at the scriptures, if you try to look at it, that's where they saw it too. They saw it on a, 
you know, kind of out in the mission field as they, as they spread the word type of thing. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's a very difficult question. It, it is a question of really of theology that steps all over psychology, and it's hard for us to answer it. Um, but I could talk around it all day. So. Okay. <laughs> well, um, we've, we're a little sloppy with time because we had extra time. So, um, anyway, thank you, Matthew, once again well, for you. your presentation. I can't clap with a live microphone in my hand. I'm sorry. Um, and, and for both Matthew and Lisa, thank you for coming and sharing from your social scientific expertise. I think there was a nice connection between those and Lisa talking about the, uh, um, you know, how do, you know, how do we give life to our scholarship in, in, in the world that we live in in every day? And here's Matthew talking about, you know, here's something that's going on in the everyday that we encounter all the time. And, um, you know, can we somehow, um, as scholars, bring our understanding and expertise to help illuminate and transform uh, what's going on in our churches with regard to mental illness? So I invite you to um, talk to them and welcome them and make them feel like social scientists are really welcome at ASA. (laughs) 